The Graveyard Shift by Colton Huskinson. Monday, 12.04 a.m. Ship start. North Utah Steel Co. The pandemic was hard for everyone, and I've been no less affected. In 2019, I was working as a cook in my hometown of Orem, Utah. A little mom-and-pop diner. It was the kind of place with a well-aged griddle that only ever gets cooked clean and never gets scrubbed because it will ruin the seasoning. The sort of place that has regulars and customers. Regulars get the wink and nod service, a little titter of laughter from the sole waitress, and their favorite seat. The customers get a professional, how you all doing today? Is this seat okay? I had worked there since high school. Brigham and Angela, the owners, always treated me right. They gave me reign of the kitchen, let me pick my hours, and even paid well for a small town diner. I never meant to work there for five years, but somehow... Time slipped away while I tried to decide if I wanted to go to U of U or BYU and what major I should pick. Mechanical engineering for my dad, pre-med for my mom, or anthropology for myself. They sat me down one quiet afternoon when the lunch crowd had left and only a few stragglers remained in the corners, nursing the remnants of lonely meals. They'd made a mug of acidic coffee for me and a hot cocoa for themselves. Angela had smiled and said, Brian, We'd like to retire in the next five years. When we do, we think you should take over this place. I said, yes, and that I'd like that very much. Just like that, my future was settled. I didn't need to go to college. My destiny had just been gifted to me by a lovely old couple. That was before the pandemic, of course, and the lockdowns and the deaths and the rush for a vaccine. Brigham died late in the fall of 2020. He was pronounced brain dead and life support was removed after 15 days on a ventilator, an SpO2 measurement of 45%, and a medically induced coma. Angela was devastated, as was I. He was more than just my boss. He was nearly my father. I spent the day of the funeral alone with my grief. She had her family. I had no one but the madness of despair. December of 2020, Angela called to inform me that she could no longer afford to keep me on as staff. Further, she was going to file for bankruptcy, and the diner would be closing permanently. If I had the money, she would gladly sell to me. Regardless, she would be leaving Utah and going to live with her sister in San Diego. She thanked me for my hard work, my dedication, and apologized that things hadn't gone how we'd planned. You are a sweet boy, she said, and I'm sorry. The diner was Brigham's dream, and it just doesn't feel worth fighting for with him gone. Naturally, I didn't have the money to buy a restaurant. Nor would a bank loan me the money, not in this economy. So I helped Angela pack her U-Haul, had a quick cry with her in remembrance of Brigham, and then said goodbye to her for the last time. I filed for unemployment the next week and began my long and fruitless task of finding a job that paid a living wage during a worldwide pandemic. In January, I moved to the city, Salt Lake, to live with a friend who had a spare bedroom in her apartment. I worked a few weeks for a food delivery company, but ultimately had car troubles, and my insurance wasn't pleased with the undisclosed venture. I tried several part-time jobs, got laid off, 
went on and off unemployment, and ultimately struggled, like so many other Americans, to find consistent work. My skill set is in food service, but in the middle of a pandemic, with no indoor dining, very few places were hiring. And most of those couldn't afford to pay more than minimum wage, what with the food delivery companies eating up all their profit margins. For the most part, I was shit out of luck. In late July of 2021, I got a call from a man named William Evans. He said he was a hiring manager for Northern Utah Steel, and that they were looking for a qualified candidate, and he thought I might fit the bill. I saw your resume on the internet. He talked loud, like a man who was hard of hearing, but hadn't realized it yet. His accent was thick, and I could only describe it as distinctly country. I know you got a background in food, he said, but it says, he was referencing my resume he'd pulled from a hiring site, that you were a kitchen manager for three years. I need a fellow who is organized, self-motivated, and can work unsupervised. If you fit the bill, the pay is good too, $18 an hour. What's the work? I asked, trying my hardest not to sound too excited. I don't have much experience in steelwork. I figured it was better to land the job honestly than to lie about experience I didn't have and get fired later. That's okay, he said, around what was either a toothpick or a cigarette. What I'm looking for is organizational skills and computer know-how. There might be some prefab work, but it's easy. We can teach you. What would I be doing? We're an old company, he said. I'd learned later that he had a habit of never directly answering questions. Rather, he would meander to the point. Nearly a hundred years in operation next spring. I wasn't sure if that meant next spring would be their hundredth year in operation, or if next spring was when he had determined they could say they'd been in operation for nearly a hundred years. I see, I said. I couldn't hide a smile in my voice. His ways were oddly charming. What's that got to do with the job? Hundred years is a long time to make a mess, he said. Hundred years is a lot of history. Definitely. I could empathize. The kitchen had always had legacy problems they were carried over for years and never dealt with. Messes are compounding. I need a young millennial with an organized brain to come in and tidy things up, he said. You know, inventory, organize, sort, track, maybe put it all in the computer, that sort of thing. You'd start in the parts room, and once you got that in shape, why, we'd let you out on the plant floor to clean up some of the workstations. I could do that. I knew I could. And even if I couldn't, I could figure something out. It was $18 an hour after all. You want to set up an interview? I wasn't looking forward to yet another interview. But by this time, I was pretty good. And since he'd called me, I thought I might have a real shot. Just did, William said laughing. <laughs> you want the job? I, I, I was flabbergasted. I do, yeah, I just... Excellent, William said. Fair warning, though. There are two sort of nasty catches that you should know before you officially accept. And they are? My heart sank. He was going to tell me it was only $18 an hour after a year of probation. Or it was only two days a week and they weren't hiring for another six months. Or it's graveyard shifts for starters, William said. I know it sucks, but the part room worker, Tony, is a prickly guy. He doesn't play well with others. But he's worked for the company for 30 years and we can't get rid of him. So you're going to have to work around him because he's the second catch. You'll be on graveyards, so you only have to interact with him for an hour or two each morning before you go home. Think that will be a problem? Graveyards suck. 
but at this point, there was little I wouldn't have done for $18 an hour, and Williams seemed like a very realistic person. And I'd seen the worst of humanity working for a restaurant. I doubted this parts room guy could be much worse. Will I report to you or the parts room guy? Neither. You'll report to Stephen. He's our plant manager for the East Shop, Williams said. He's a super nice kid, young, like yourself. You can ignore whatever Tony says, just so long as you're doing what Stephen wants. You'd have to work days for the first week so Stephen can line you out on tasks. After that, the night shift guys will let you in on their way out. So what do you say? Yeah, I said. Yeah, I think so. Awesome, Brian. We can't wait to have you on board. Alice from HR will be reaching out to you shortly. She will ask for references and all, but don't worry, you've already got the job. I'm not even going to call him. Is this number a good one for her to call? Yeah, this number's fine. Excellent, William said. See you soon. Just like that, after nearly a year of searching, I'd found another job with a livable wage. I was optimistic about this one, too. Despite the whirlwind nature of the call and William's informality, I felt like a company that had lasted for nearly a century must be stable. They weren't unprofessional. They just knew what they were looking for and didn't waste time finding it. Alice reached out to me that day, and we had the paperwork sorted by close of business. I would start the following Monday for my week of training with Stephen, and then roll directly into graveyard shift. The first week was a blur. Williams had been right. There truly was a hundred years of mess. We spent the first week workshopping solutions rather than training. Stephen was new to his role in leadership, and had little experience with inventory and inventory management. I was new to the steel industry, but actually had some experience with purchasing, inventorying, and distributing, albeit on a much smaller scale. Together, we built a decent system using Microsoft Access, a barcode labeler, scanner, and two rolling dumpsters. Stephen was nice, but distant. He said I was the third person that Williams had hired to fill this role. The other two hadn't worked out. His reticence made sense, even though it annoyed me. Why should he hold their failure against me? It also made me reconsider Williams' hiring style. Perhaps his informality was detrimental to the company after all. But with all due humility, I knew he'd made the right choice this time. I was excited by the challenge of it all, and found the work, while hard, rewarding. The only sticking point truly was Tony. Tony was the quintessential angry man who'd been stuck in the same position for decades, but couldn't see that his own resentment was the reason he'd never move out of it. He was a bitter, backstabbing, malicious, and frankly creepy person. He kept a picture of himself on the wall of his office with the eyes punched out, and another of a mostly naked woman who didn't look to be 18, under his monitor. He liked to talk about anime and the pornos he'd watched the night before. His hair was lanky, poorly washed, and thinning badly. The man's body was crooked and skinny and seemed to twist in on itself like the molted shell of an insect. I immediately, and privately, called him Gollum. I found out later that the rest of the shop did as well, just not so privately. He hated the changes we were trying to make and resisted Stephen on every proposal, so much so that the young plant manager took to holding our meetings during Tony's lunch break so he wouldn't be there to complain. My solace was the knowledge that Tony's opinion meant nothing and that once I went on the graveyard shift, I'd only have to see him for an hour and a half a day. My shift would start at midnight and end at 8.30, and he started at 7 a.m., and even then, 
Steven would be there to check on my night's work and mitigate Tony's influence. At the time, I couldn't wait for my shift change and the freedom of working alone on a big project. Which is where I find myself now. It's my first solo night at the facility, and I'm excited. I got let in by Carlos, the night shift lead, who looked at me with a hollow sort of expression. He has the feel of a man whose work has consumed him to the point that he doesn't know how to talk about it. The only thing he can do is go home to sleep and then drink the pain away on the weekend. He doesn't say hello or goodnight despite my best efforts, only holds the door open long enough for me to enter the shop and then stomps off towards his truck without looking back. His lunchbox dangles in one hand and a length of pipe in the other. I wonder for a second if he is stealing supplies from work. Why else have a pipe? But decide it isn't my business or my problem. Maybe he's just one of those paranoid guys who think that someone is hiding and waiting to stab him. Probably has a loaded pistol in his glove box too. The shop is eerie with most of the lights turned off. Carlos, despite his surly attitude, was nice enough to leave a rechargeable flashlight on a stool by the door with a note written in a blocky hand that says, keep this with you. It makes sense. There's a lot of machinery in the shop and a lot more opportunities to trip and fall or to smash my head on something. I have a key to the parts room in my pocket. It sits lightly against my thigh, as if it carries with it the joy of independence and freedom to work alone. I slap my pocket near the soft clink of metal and smile. Both Tony and Steven have admonished me to keep the parts room locked anytime I'm not in it, even if it's just to sneak to the bathroom or to grab a candy bar from the vending machine in the break room. There are a lot of valuables in there, Steven had said. Keep it locked. An open door invites trouble. Tony said in a much more biting tone, Don't you dare leave my room unlocked. It seems excessive, but I intend to obey completely. I can't afford to mess this up. I unlocked the parts room door and glanced behind me at the entrance to the bathroom on the other side of the shop, some hundred feet away. The light dims as the building's HVAC system kicks on and starts to flicker subtly, bright to dim, bright to dim, a consistent rhythm. I enter the parts room and close the door behind me, making sure I lock it. Directly in front there is a counter, where Tony sits, when he's not in his office, to check out tools, hardware, and parts that aren't buyout related. He has a big ledger that everyone who requests an item signs, and he records what they took. If something is being returned, he makes a note on the original entry, but with a different date. My task for the night is to digitize this list, so that it can all be tracked on the computer and automatically update the inventory when parts leave and when they come back. I also need to put barcodes on all of the tools, but in a way that they won't get destroyed when used. I set my lunchbox on the counter, fish out an energy drink, I've brought several. I know it's going to be a long first couple nights, and get to work. It's tedious. The logbook goes back to 2011, and was only updated occasionally. There are tools that left and were never checked back in, but then evidently left again, meaning they were returned, just not logged. And of course, tools that were returned but never signed out. It seems as though over half of the tools that this parts room has owned since 2011 have left and simply never been returned. I get frustrated and start wandering the aisles of the parts room, wondering if I'm going about this the wrong way. If the shop as a whole is eerie in the dark, the parts room is just odd. It smells somehow different at night, though I'm not sure I can quantify how. Musty, perhaps, like old leaves that have sat all winter in a pile under the snow, decaying earth and morbidity. 
There's less of the industrial smell than the daylight hours hold, less stink of welding fumes, sealant, and grease. The single fluorescent light that hangs above the six rows of shelves doesn't quite reach the floor, a problem solved in daytime hours by the frosted glass window on the east side of the room. But at night, I'm forced to use the flashlight that Carlos left me just to read the labels on the bottom shelf. This is made harder because the flashlight's battery is weak. It's already dimmer than when I first turned it on. No matter. I will work in Tony's office, which has enough light, while I figure out how to digitize this logbook. Monday, 4.32 a.m., mid-shift, men's bathroom. I don't think that there is much that can be done with the old logbook. It's just too inconsistent and far too inaccurate to transpose any meaningful data from it. I've built an Excel version of it and mapped the barcode scanner to it. I think the best policy will be to scrap the paper logbook and start over. Before I decide that entirely, I want to be sure I have a rock-solid argument for Steven. I don't think he'll have a problem with it, but this is my first night alone, and I've already deviated from his assignment, so I want to be sure. In the meantime, I've drank two energy drinks and have to piss. Carlos's flashlight is nearly dead now, and it barely does anything for me on the walk across the plant floor. I almost brain myself on an overhead crane. It seems like they ought to return them to an above head height level at the end of day, but that's not my job. The HVAC is running again, so the bathroom entrance is flickering. Maybe the caffeine and sleep deprivation is messing with my head, but the rhythm seems faster than before, with the dims dimmer and the brights brighter. The ones on the inside are doing it too and I can hear the low electrical hum that fluorescent lights sometimes have. It makes for a nauseating experience while I pee. The bathroom is pretty gross. It smells like piss and looks like it hasn't been cleaned in a long time. Bits of toilet paper are stuck to the tile and wadded into the corners. The floor is sticky under my shoes, and I have to stand wide at the urinal to avoid getting my feet wet in a cloudy puddle. But it's a fabrication shop. I suppose hygiene isn't as important as productivity. I wonder if they pay a cleaner to come in, or if someone on the shit list just gets volunteered. I'm not bringing it up. The last thing I want is Stephen deciding that janitorial duties are something that could be done on the graveyard shift. Besides, I've been in worse bathrooms. Any long road trip will expose you to a menagerie of bathroom horror. I finish up, hit the flusher, and go to the water trough-looking sink. The soap is gritty, like someone filled it with sand, probably for scrubbing grease off, and is sort of satisfying to smear on my skin. I study my face in the dirty mirror while I scrub, and wonder if my eyes could look any more sunken. The water has just hit my hands when the flickering bathroom lights go out entirely. The only light is the weak orange glow of Carlos's flashlight that I set on the paper towel dispenser. It's shining on the side of my face, but isn't even bright enough to make me squint. Damn it, I mutter in the dark. What else can I expect from old buildings like this? I figure the lights will come back eventually. I hope that the ones in the parts room are working. It's going to be much harder to do my job if they aren't. The water gets suddenly hot, scaldingly hot, hot enough that I yelp and rip my hands out. What the fuck? It would have been nice if Stephen had told me the hot water system is broken, before I scalded my hands. I step back from the sink and bump into someone. My heels land hard on their foot. My back presses full against their chest. I feel their exhaled breath on my neck. Sorry, I mutter and step forward. Panic. 
I'm supposed to be alone here, and there was no one in the bathroom when the lights were on. I was looking in the mirror. I scramble for the flashlight. Its sickly orange light does little as I wave it wildly around the room. There is no one there, though my sleep-deprived brain and the poor light play tricks on me. I feel like I see movement in every shadow. Sleep deprivation. I mutter. My heart is still pounding frantically, even painfully. People with a lack of sleep can hallucinate. It's sort of embarrassing that it happened so quickly to me, but that is all it can be. I don't know what happened to the Brian who could stay up all night playing video games with people in 12 different time zones. The HVAC system cuts off and the lights come back, illuminating the bathroom in dim, greenish hues. I shakily check the two stalls, but can't muster the courage to speak. I am alone, I think. Alone with my own imagination. Tuesday, 12.10 a.m., shift start, shop entrance. Hey, Carlos, I say to the big man as he drudges away from the door, wait a second. He pauses, turns slowly. His expression is still empty. Can I get a flashlight with a better battery? This one barely lasted the night. I don't have any that will, Carlos mumbles and then turns back to his truck. Great, I mutter and let the door swing shut. I shouldn't complain. He was nice enough to leave it for me there again, and it has a full charge. A company this large and this old could afford some flashlights with battery lives longer than eight hours. It's frustrating that I don't have one. I should have asked him for a charger so I could leave it plugged in while I work in Tony's office. I fish my notebook out of my pocket and scribble a reminder to ask someone in the morning. There is a strange electrical hum in the shop today that I do not remember from yesterday, like the noise a transformer makes when it's about to blow, just subtler. It puts my teeth on edge and I walk quickly through the shop. I go straight to the parts room and get to work. Stephen was cool with my change of plans regarding the logbook. He liked what I built in Excel and was pleased with the other work I got done. Today's main task is to finish the logbook, then barcode and catalog every single tool used for checkouts. I was supposed to set up the logbook on Tony's computer, but he didn't leave it logged on and I can't find his password anywhere, so we'll have to wait until morning. I keep thinking about my weird encounter in the bathroom yesterday. I've decided that it was a combination of stress from the new job, sleep deprivation, and far too much caffeine. I'm going to try to get through the night with one fewer energy drink, and I brought crunchy snacks instead. Time to work. Tuesday, 3.17 a.m., mid-shift, parts room. Someone else is clearly in the shop tonight. I really wish I'd been told that I wasn't alone. It isn't like I'm doing something I'm not supposed to. But I've thought several times about calling the police, just in case it's someone breaking and entering and not another employee. I've heard voices twice, one rough and likely a man's voice, though I can't distinguish words. The other a little gentler. Maybe a woman's? I've heard footsteps pass the parts room door a couple times. I am definitely not alone here. Part of me thinks that I should go out and see who it is, but my flashlight is basically out of batteries, and frankly, I don't feel like getting stabbed if it's a burglar. I will ask Stephen about it in the morning. Perhaps he has an explanation. It might be the cleaning staff or something. Tuesday, 4.01 a.m., mid-shift, parts room. I've decided to go see who's in the shop with me. I just got, essentially, doorbell ditched twice. Both times nearly scared me to death. 
I was working quietly by myself, playing a little music on my phone when, bam, 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 someone pounded on the door. Pounded like they meant business. By the time I got there, whoever it was was gone. I shouted in the dark, but no one answered. I won't lie, it's a solid prank to play on the sleep-deprived, nervy new guy. I'm just annoyed that Steven didn't clue me into the fact that there would be other people working. So now I'm going out to see who it is. It might be nice to have new work friends instead of working alone all the time. Tuesday, 4.16am, mid-shift, plant floor. I went out to look for my obnoxious co-worker, and my flashlight died while I was out in the middle of the plant by the enormous press break. I decided to use my phone's light instead, but it seems to be broken. I can't get the flash to turn on. So now I'm using the screen at full brightness to illuminate my path. It's slow going because the screen only lights a couple feet in front of me, and I've already gotten the 20% battery warning. I shouldn't have streamed music, I guess. I must have left the parchum door open. I don't remember closing and locking it, so I think it's likely. Because it stands open now, shining like a beacon for my progress. Looks like the bathroom lights have gone out again, too. Odd, because the HVAC isn't running. Tuesday, 4.18 a.m., mid-shift, plant floor. Oh my god, there's a body. There's a body all wrapped around one of the lathes. I can see the bones and intestines and lots and lots of blood. They must have turned it on and got caught on the shaft, pulled in, ground up. There's so much blood. It's running down the side of the lathe and pooling on the floor. I don't know what to do. Call 911. I need to call 911. My phone died. I'm in the dark. The person on the lathe isn't dead. I can hear them moaning. How can they moan with their body all twisted like that? I have to get help. There's so much blood. I can feel it pooling around my ankles. I'm running through the plant towards the parts room. It's dark. I can feel clotted lumps of blood rubbing against my shins. How can there be this much blood? Oh god, there's someone in the parts room door. Help! I scream. I can taste the blood splashing into my mouth as I run. I need help! They close the parts room door. It's utterly black. I'm too afraid to move. I hear footsteps sloshing through the blood behind me. Step. Drag. Step drag like someone with a limp the moaning ends suddenly i think i'm going to be killed tuesday 4:27 a.m. mid shift plant floor so this is the second night and second hallucination i'm still standing by the lathe my flashlight is working fine except it's annoyingly dim and the body i saw is just a pile of shop rags the blood is nothing more than spilled oil I think the moaning was my own whimpering voice. God, I'm pathetic. This is absurd. Tuesday, 4.29 a.m., mid-shift, plant floor. The parts room door wasn't even open. I guess I imagined forgetting to lock it. What the fuck is wrong with me? Wednesday, 2.22 p.m., bedtime, apartment. My roommate is at work. She has a daytime job. And I am alone in the apartment with no one to talk to. I think I need to speak with someone, though. I can't stop thinking about last night and the night before. I'm terrified to go back to work. A large part of me wants to quit. But the $18 an hour is impossible to say no to. I need money. My roommate doesn't let me live here for free. I tried to ask Steven who was working last night, but he was cagey and said, There probably wasn't anyone in the facility. Sometimes there is, though. Some of the guys work late occasionally come in if we have big projects. 
I don't know what that means, and I don't want to tell him that I'm seeing shit. I just got the job. I can't lose it because I'm having a mental break. I told Tony the shop was creepy at night, and he just laughed at me like I told him the funniest joke ever. I wanted to punch him. I'm not a violent person, but right then, all I could think about was draining his blood all over the parts room floor and then running through it. It's weird. I don't like what these late nights are doing to me. Also, weirdly, my cell phone's flashlight works fine at home. Wednesday, 12.57am, early shift, parts room. I came back to work. I simply have to do it for the money. My mental health notwithstanding, Stephen said in an email that he's extremely happy with what I've done so far, and I can't really afford to quit. If I can get laid off or fired so I can collect unemployment, that's one thing. But out-and-out quitting is off the table. I'm more prepared tonight. I stopped by Walmart on my way to work and bought several flashlights, snacks, and some stimulant-free energy drinks. I'm dubious about their efficacy, but I will take what I can get. I also brought an aluminum baseball bat with me that my roommate had kicking around her apartment. I told her the parking lot was sketchy, and she didn't mind loaning it to me. I don't know why I felt the need to lie about it. I think I'm worried she will say I'm going insane if I tell her about my hallucinations. But the bat makes me feel safer here. It makes me think about Carlos and his pipe. Today, I need to label and enter more inventory items into the database. This will probably take longer than one shift, but if I get time, I also want to put in an order request for better shelving. These shelves feel like they are nearly a century old. They are rickety and frankly shit. In addition to work, my goal is to keep myself centered and disregard any strange noises. The only time I'm going to leave the parts room will be to use the bathroom and to go home at the end of my shift. I've brought my lunch into Tony's office. I won't have to leave to eat it. It's pizza, so it'll be fine cold. Wednesday, 3.21 a.m., early shift, parts room. Nothing weird has happened yet tonight, at least not in the shop, other than the flashlights all sucking. There's something about this place that seems to eat batteries. Even my new ones are half dead and my cell phone light stopped working again. I wonder if it has to do with that strange electrical hum I hear sometimes. But while the shop is mostly normal, my brain is absolutely fucked. I daydream about killing Tony. Not the, oh, I hope he gets hit in a car crash and doesn't come back to work kind of daydream that most people have once or twice in their life when they deal with a really obnoxious or difficult person. No. No, this is different. I keep catching myself thinking about how I intend to kill him. I've made several different plans already with full intent on following through, before catching myself and realizing how horrific and wrong it is. I could use one of the nail guns on him. He always comes in and puts his coffee at his desk before going to put his lunch in the refrigerator in the break room. All I'd have to do is put it to his temple and pop. He'd be dead. I bet it would kill him straight up. Not enough blood, though. My eyes drift towards the electric chainsaw hanging from one of the shelves. Fuck. There it is again. What the fuck? Wednesday, 6.43 a.m., late shift, parts room. I did some googling on my break. I think I might have a brain tumor. It can cause dramatic personality and mood shifts, hallucinations, paranoia, and more. I think I should go see a doctor. Wednesday, 6.59 a.m., late shift, parts room. 
The moment Tony walks through the parts room door, I'm going to saw him in half, from right clavicle to left hip, then I'm going to throat fuck his corpse. Wednesday, 8.57am, bedtime, apartment. I had to lie to both Tony and Steven when they showed up this morning and asked me why I was carrying the electric chainsaw in the parking lot. I'd decided to go kill Tony before he got out of his car, but by the time I got out of the shop, the weird mood was gone. I was left standing there looking like an idiot. I told him that I wanted to check and see if it was working before I added it to the inventory, but that it didn't seem like a smart choice to run it indoors. Steven agreed, but he told me that it would be fine if I let Tony manage the repairs and testing of equipment. I smiled and said, for sure, and then passed the chainsaw to Tony. Tony asked me a weird question as I was preparing to leave. He asked, did you leave the parts room door open and unlocked? I said no, of course not, because I haven't. I thought I had, but I haven't. He said, good, somebody could get in if you did, then went inside. I'm at home now trying to decide what to do. On the bright side, I didn't hallucinate last night, which means that maybe cutting the caffeine was a good call. On the darker side, I did battle murder fantasies all night. Now that I'm home, those thoughts are terrible, humiliating, and disgusting. Something is definitely wrong with me. I called a couple specialists, told them I had all the symptoms of a brain tumor. I found a list on the internet and read it to them, but the earliest I can get in is in two weeks. It will have to do. I'm going to sleep now and try to figure out how not to kill Tony tomorrow. Wednesday, 6.49pm, bedtime, apartment. I couldn't sleep so I got up early. I hope this lack of sleep doesn't fuck me up further. I'm already unstable. My roommate is home from work and offered to buy dinner for both of us. She said, You look like you're dying, Brian. What gives? I'm trying to decide if I should tell her the whole thing or not. How does one broach the topic of self-diagnosing as insane, or, an even more remote possibility, that one's workplace is somehow causing insanity? The thing is, she continues, after I'm silent for far too long, you don't just look like crap, you've been acting weird too. Graveyard shift, I mutter. I can't make eye contact. How can I tell her that I spent a day fantasizing about murdering one of my coworkers, and then expect her to be okay living with me? I'm extremely tired. Those aren't lies. They just aren't complete truths either. No. No. She jabs her tear contender at me. No, it's more than that. Tired, I'll buy. Stressed about the new job and stressed about the job hunt before that. Sure, I'll buy that too. But these past couple weeks, you've been different, bro. Even Megan noticed it, and she's never sober when she's here. Megan, her riotous, barely functioning alcoholic and sometimes lover of a friend, isn't someone I'd normally peg as a reliable character witness. Different how? I bite into a curly fry and wince. My gums are a little sore this morning. I wonder if I'm getting sick. I don't feel different. A whole lie this time. You were sitting away from the TV staring at the wall today. Your phone was on the bathroom floor when I came back from work. You didn't blink for like two minutes and didn't answer me. I thought you were asleep with your eyes open. I did that? I have no recollection. Then again, I don't remember her getting home either. You did, she said. Then you told me I shouldn't have left the door open. Oh, God. Thursday, 12.12 a.m., early shift, parking lot. You don't have to do this, Carlos says as he holds the door for me. 
There are other jobs. What do you mean? I don't know why I'm trying to hide how freaked out I am right now. His dead eyes tell a horror story of their own. One that will care little for mine. This man has seen the worst of life, and it destroyed him. He shrugs. You don't have to listen. His lunchbox drags across the parking lot as he walks, the pipe screeching as the metal scrapes asphalt. His shoulders slump. He gets in his truck, the door groaning in protest as he slams it, and then roars out of the parking lot, the taillights bouncing away down the road. I shouldn't go inside. I go inside. The flashlight is there on the stool. I take it and add it to my own collection, and then begin the long trudge across the shop floor towards the parts room. A single key has never felt so heavy in my pocket. It's almost as if it could drag me down to the earth. Ominous dread tells me not to take it, not to fit it into the lock, not to open the parts room. I shouldn't have left the door open. Those words chill me. The HVAC is on and the bathroom lights are flickering. Bright, dim, bright, dim. I ignore it. I reach for the handle to the door. It's cold as ice. I know these are my delusions. I know it isn't real. Still, it frightens me. My hallucinations have returned. Welcome back, Tony's corpse tells me from behind the counter as I step into the room. His skull is split from top to bottom and there are obvious nail gun impacts in his knees. We missed you. I don't know how he can speak with his face so badly ruined. Panic. I'm panicking. This isn't real. I know this isn't real. I shouldn't have left the door open. Tony reaches out, except it isn't Tony, it's Brigham. His face ghostly white running to blue in death and places a hand on my shoulder. I feel the weight of it. It's heavy. You should kill Tony, he tells me, and then you should kill yourself. He's always been like a father to me. Even in death, I want to please him. I want to do what he asks. I can't. I scream and try to open the door, except the lights have gone out and I can't find the handle. My hands are trembling, and my own pulse is loud in my ears. I hear footsteps, too. The slow stomp and drag of a person with a bad leg. You shouldn't have let us in here. A voice like cracking iron tells me, You were safe until you let us in here. I shouldn't have left the door open. This is a hallucination. I'm trying desperately to find myself, center my thoughts. None of this is real. I close my eyes and breathe. Brain tumors can cause hallucinations. So can sleep deprivation. That is all that is happening. I am alone in this room. A strictly logical part of my brain reminds me that I don't know if I have a tumor. Oddly, the idea that I might is comforting though. It grounds the moment and gives me a rational explanation. I open my eyes. The parts room is back to normal. There are no dead people talking. I go to my computer. There's so much to do. I want to sort through the consumables, organize and inventory the hardware, generate a list of needed supplies, and find out if there are any old purchase order records. Tony does the ordering, but I want to earn some brownie points with him by including order information with my list of needed supplies. I blink. I'm not in a parts room. I'm in a meat locker. Row upon row of hanging carcasses dangle from great hooks attached to the ceiling. Except they aren't animal carcasses, they are human. My breath frosts in the air before me. It's so cold. I scream, though I do not know why. I am at home. Is this not my art? I slowly caress the gaping front of a cleaned abdomen and smile. Ah yes, the musty, even earthy smell of well-aged meat.
I sit on Tony's desk, sobbing. You let us in, the voice screams. My voice screams. It pleases me. Someone please let me out. Help me. I need help. I'm glad that I left the door open. Thursday, 5.48 a.m., late shift, parts room. I lay naked on the floor in a spreading pool of blood. I am exhausted by the red work of the night. My art is piled high in decadent crimson heaps like cords of wood stored for a long winter. It is a harvest well and honestly reaped. My semen mixes with the viscous red blood that pools around me. A voice begs desperately to be let free, cries about delusions and hallucinations, but I ignore it. For the moment is too sweet to let foul words diminish it. I have found release in the warm wetness of blood. Leave the door open. Thursday, 7.10 a.m., early shift, parts room. You left the door open. Tony interrupts my dream. We warned you. It isn't a wet slaughterhouse anymore. It is simply a parts room. I am not naked but my shirt is torn and blood pours down my body in delicious, sensuous ways from cuts across my chest and arms. I delight to see it, though I do not know how I was so injured. I delight in seeing Tony even more. This is what happens. There is too much that is valuable in here, Tony is saying. Come out of this room. We can get you cleaned up, help you. I look down. The nail gun is in my hand. Its plastic is warm and fits nicely in my fingers. Tony is close, his slender hand down by my face, as though he wants me to take it. His knees are closer still, right by the nail gun. I've just to... I press a nail gun against his left knee and pull the trigger. The little twenty-two caliber cartridge explodes and drives a nail out of the horizontally fed clip right into the man's knee. Tony screams and drops to the ground. Blood oozes from between his fingers where he clutches his wounded limb. A little stub of metal sticks out of his kneecap. He is crying and cursing me. He goes deathly still, though, when I put the nail gun against his other knee and pull the trigger. Now he is begging for help, wailing for it, dying for it. It pleases me. He cannot flee this beautiful moment, so I stand carefully and move towards the rack of tools. I take the electric chainsaw, a barcode freshly affixed, and step near the fallen begging man. I put the blade against his face. Tony goes still again, this time with dawning horror and fear. Please, he says, please, Brian. I left the door open. My voice is hoarse, like the flaking scale on a freshly forged ingot. I left the door open, Tony. I don't care about the fucking door, he sobs, his voice wet with pain and emotion. I don't care about the door. I squeeze the chainsaw handle and start cutting. I cut his head open from skull to torso. This is what I waited for after all. I cut his flesh and then I cut my own. I mix our blood in a ritual more intimate than sex. My guts spill into his brains. He screams no more and I laugh. He cries no more and I howl with relentless joy. For I am... His death. I am... Salt Lake City Daily. Last updated Thursday, 12.53 p.m. In what has so far been deemed a murder-suicide, 
The butchered remains of Brian Richards and Tony Rousseau were both found at North Utah Steel Company this morning. The police are unclear of the motive. However, the plant manager, Stephen Brady, had this to say about his co-workers. I don't, I don't get it. Brian was a nice kid, real down to earth. The place is a bit odd, sure, but not kill a guy odd. Tony was rough around the edges, but I don't know. He grew on people. He wasn't really a bad guy. This story will be updated as more information becomes available. I worked a graveyard shift Full of dark and rotted flesh Blessed the end that settled swift Free to roam and feast afresh The End of The Graveyard Shift by Colton Huskinson